All right. Is this okay? Oh, bother me. What year is this supposed to be on? The other one? Is that better? Can you hear me? Okay. <laughs> I'm going to steal one of your waters again. I'll put this down. Right, so that was what a thirty-second transformation. Was that uh, fast enough? All right, try to do better next time. Well, we hear it every day. The headlines scream it at us. It's impossible to ignore. One day, it's the horrific story of a team of brothers who packed. Pressure, cooker, pressure cookers full of nails and metal shards and ball bearings and wired them to go off at the finish line of the Boston Marathon, killing three innocent people, one just an eight-year-old boy, and wounding 240 and 264. And the next day, it's the account of a man who kidnapped three innocent women and held them against their will in his house for a decade, repeating, repeatedly raping and terrorizing them. Sometimes while he was entertaining his relatives and children in just the next room. And a few days later, it's the account of three gunmen opening fire on a Mother's Day parade, wounding almost two dozen innocent people, including two 10-year-old children. And then, of course, there's the headline of a man in our own backyard who single-handedly was responsible for the death of thousands of innocent babies via abortions throughout a 30-year career. And this madman ran what is sensationally called a house of horrors with month-old fetal remains stored in jars and bags and jugs haphazardly strewn throughout his clinic. And when babies were born alive, he would just sever their spinal cord with scissors. Brother, this is just a few headlines that we've seen in the last few weeks. And even as we speak, you can bank on the fact that atrocities matching or even surpassing these are being planned, even executed, and perhaps even in your own neighborhood. And we tend to grow numb at this. It's just the way it is, we tell ourselves. It's, it's, you know, some of us try to ignore it. Others tell themselves that these people must somehow be extraordinarily evil, and that none of the people we possibly know would ever do any of these things. But unfortunately, that's just not true. Even secular psychologists have accepted that ordinary people, given the correct opportunity and motivation, are capable of the most depraved things, and there's numerous studies on this. And it really does seem that ordinary people are capable of the worst types of crimes. And, and that's why after atrocities such as these we just talked about, when the media interviews the friends and family of the culprit, the reactions are so frequently what? Surprise, shock. How could this guy have done it? He seemed so ordinary. So why do ordinary people do such evil things? And how can people be so callous and depraved? Where does this evil come from? The media is eager to give us their answers, and you've heard them all. 
It's because of childhood trauma, they say, or maybe it's because of drug and alcohol abuse. Or maybe it's that they're not taking enough drugs to offset the mental balance in their brain, or, or maybe it's too much violence in video games and TV. Or maybe it's because they had some felt needs that, they, that weren't met by their parents. Or maybe if we as a society were just nicer to them, they would just stop all this evil. That's the answers we hear about in the media. And, and all of these answers completely miss the real issue. Because those explanations all point to the things that are what? Outside of us. Outside of us. But the Bible tells us that the problem is not outside of us at all. The problem is on the inside. You say, what do you mean? Well, Jesus is going to tell us today. Let's go to the text. Let's turn with, turn with me to Mark 7. And we will be starting out in verse 14. So Mark 7, verse 14. And as you turn there, just let me fill you in on a little bit of a background. And if you were here last week, of course, um, you remember we looked at Mark 7, the, the first 13 verses of Mark 7, uh, verses 1 to 13. And here we find Jesus about a year before the cross, if you remember, and he's visiting the city, and he's surrounded by a mob of about maybe 10,000 or more people. And he's performing this miraculous mass healing service. People are it tells us, being brought in on beds and, and mats and stretchers, the very sick and paralyzed, and people are crowding around him. And Matthew, of course, Matthew's account tells us they were just touching the fringe of his garment, and they were being made well. This was the kind of power that was coming out of Jesus, that merely being brushed by the fringe of his garment would heal you. And in the middle of this mass healing service, suddenly a hush falls over the crowd, a large group of important-looking men walked in on the scene, and the crowd knows who these people are, so they back off. And these men are, of course, the scribes and the Pharisees. And it tells us in Mark 7:1 that these men, who are the religious leaders of their, uh, of their country, of their nation, were sent all the way from Jerusalem. So that was several days' walk to get there. And their goal wasn't to be healed. It wasn't to participate in this amazing, miraculous healing service. Their goal was to accuse and discredit Jesus. And why was that their goal? Because Jesus, of course, went against their religious tradition. He posed a threat to them like no one had ever posed before. Because Jesus was preaching a gospel of salvation by faith, by repentance and belief. And these leaders, they were preaching that if you were righteous enough and obeyed the rules well enough, then you would be accepted into heaven. Now, let me just take one brief minute to review for you the system that the Pharisees taught um, so that we can have the background for this passage we're looking at today. Uh, we talked about last week about this concept of clean and unclean that God had set up in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. And, of course, there were certain things that uh, you could do or you could touch that would make you unclean. And then you would have to follow God's, God's prescribed plan in order to be clean again. And only, of course, when you were in the state of being clean were you allowed to come to the temple to worship God. 
And God's intention for this system all along, as we explained last time, was to show that God is absolutely holy all the time and always clean. And man, by nature, is unclean. That was the point of the, of the, of the, of the, of the laws. And, and the Jews were supposed to realize that after decades and centuries of, of doing this clean, unclean, clean, unclean, that they were to realize they needed a permanent way to become clean. And of course, when the one came that could make them permanently clean by their blood and sacrifice, they were supposed to recognize that and, and recognize how awesome it was that this dividing wall between God and man would be permanently ripped down. And then they were supposed to welcome their Savior, Jesus Christ, with joy. That was what was supposed to happen. But somewhere along the lines, the Pharisees had taken a hold of these laws and of course, they said, if you stay clean, the purpose of the laws was if you stay clean, you got into heaven. And that's false. That was never the goal. But then they made, you know, they went one step, one step further, and they made this whole system of rules around the rules that God actually gave, and that's called the tradition of the elders. Look, look down in Mark 7, verse 3. The tradition of the elders. These are artificial, man-made laws that vastly extended the number of ways you could be unclean. Laws that, listen, God himself never gave. And they expected that everyone were to follow these man-made laws just as they would follow God's given laws. So these religious leaders, they come to accuse Jesus and his disciples of breaking these laws of cleanness and uncleanness. And so listen, accuse the disciples and by implication accuse Jesus of being unclean. And their logic was if these people are unclean, then they must not be from God. And you shouldn't believe their message. And that's what they were trying to say. So they noticed that Jesus' disciples ate without cleaning their hands, and they leveled their accusation in Mark 7, verse 5. If you look down, just to refresh your memory, they said, why do your disciples eat with unclean hands? And Jesus, you remember, we talked about last time, just blasted them. He just unloaded on them. And Without missing a beat, Jesus accuses them right back. My disciples may break your man-made tradition, Jesus says, but you break God's law, which is more important. And with that, Jesus goes to expose their rank hypocrisy. And in verses 6 and 7, he exposes their main issue. And the main issue is this, that although they honor God with their lips, outwardly they keep an appearance of righteousness. In reality, their hearts were cold and far from God. They had cold, hypocritical hearts. They were religious pretenders who, whose worship was an abomination to God. This was rank hypocrisy of the worst kind, and God rejected them. And this, of course, was all offensive enough. And if Jesus had stopped there, that would have been enough to send them in a murderous rage. But Jesus isn't done. And what he does next in the passage we'll look at today is absolutely unforgivable in the eyes of these self-righteous Pharisees who love to look good in front of men. And Jesus is now about to call them out publicly. So that's what we, look up, that's what we left off last time, and today we're in Mark 7, verse 14, and follow along as we read to verse 23. After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. 
There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things, that, the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed evil thoughts, fornication, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. Let's pause for a word of prayer. Father, um, we're humbled before your word. We come and we ask that you would give us understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit. And Lord, um, this passage speaks to us all. It gives us a clear picture of who we are. And, um, and Lord, that's really the best thing that we could all have. Um, that's the, the greatest blessing, is to see ourselves in the truest light. So, Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage, that you would illuminate it for us. We would understand. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's go back to the beginning of the passage. And, and uh, as you do, we're, if you're taking notes, we're going to note three fundamental facts about man's defilement today. So we're going to note three fundamental facts about man's defilement. Let's go back to verse 14. Verse 14 says, After he called the crowd to him again, he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Okay, so stop right there for a second. Remember, at this point, the crowd had backed off, right? And, and, and Jesus now calls them back. Because Jesus realized that the crowd has bought into the Pharisees' system of false religion, hook, line, and sinker. And he wants to correct the worldview, not just for the Pharisees, but for the crowd, as to who he was really concerned about. And do you get the feeling that Jesus isn't joking around? I mean, he says, listen to me, all of you. He, he looks the crowd in the eye, and, and, and he really, really wants them to understand this. This is an important message that Jesus is going to tell them. So let's keep going. Verse 15. This is the message. There is nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And by the way, just as a, a quick aside, uh, some of you might be missing that, that last verse in verse 16. Um, that that verse, uh, verse 16 is actually missing in the best manuscripts. And so if you have an ESV, then it won't have a verse 16. Uh, but the NAS... Uh, included in brackets. But whether it's there or not doesn't affect the text at all. I just wanted to mention that in case you were confused. Okay, so this brings us, this passage brings us to the first fundamental fact about man's defilement. Number one is the source of man's defilement is purely internal. The source of man's defilement is purely internal. In other words, we're not made unclean and unacceptable to God from anything that comes inside of us. That is, any external foods in this case, as they thought. But we're made unclean and unacceptable before God because, listen, the filth that pours out from inside out. 
the filth that pours out of us from inside out. This is something revolutionary to the crowd that Jesus is telling them. Because all their lives, they were trying to keep the bad stuff out, right? The whole deal with washing your hands before you eat is, if your hands are somehow defiled, then the food that you touch might be defiled. And if the food that you touch is defiled, then when you eat it, your whole body is defiled. And you can't have that. They're deathly afraid of eating something or doing something that will make them impure before God. And Jesus is telling them, look, guys, you have a much bigger problem. What you eat and take into your stomach has absolutely nothing to do with why you're dirty before God. You're dirty and unclean before God because of what is, what? Inside of you. And what's more, because it's inside of you, there's really nothing you can do to stop it. No amount of watching what you can eat can change this. You are already impure, be God, uh, impure before God just by the very nature of the essence that is within you. And really he's saying this, you're already unclean inside no matter what you do on the outside. You see what Jesus did here? He, these, these people thought that God was concerned about their outside defilement. And Jesus says, look, you were misinformed. God doesn't look on the outside. He looks on the inside. And in the inside, you've already failed the test. And friends, it's the same for you guys. It's the same for us. You may think that you look pretty good to the outside world, but you have to think, what does God see when he looks inside your heart? I'll tell you what he's going to see. He's going to see sin. And since it comes from inside you and not any, anything outside of you, you have no excuse. You have no one to blame but yourself. It comes from you. One commentator puts it this way. Sin works its way from the inside out. Sin starts on the inside and then works its way on the outside. And, you know, this is really not totally new information for the crowds. After all, the crowd should have known Jeremiah 17.9, right? And we all know this verse. The heart is more what? deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? That's in their Old Testament. The, the heart of a man is sick, it says, and some translations render that word wicked. Other translations render that word corrupt. You get the idea. Your heart is wicked, corrupt, and sick. It's not like God suddenly changed the rules on them. This is how it's been all along. They just got away from it because they were carried away by the lie of Satan. Now, I just want to bring this back to our day and age a bit, because in our culture, we don't necessarily have a problem with eating foods. Um, we don't share that worldview. For most of us, we don't worry about ceremonial and cleanness and purity. We, we love a good Memorial Day barbecue, right? Um, that's what I'm looking forward to tomorrow. I'm all about the baby back ribs or the double cheeseburger, you know what I mean? But guess what? The essential worldview problem that they had and that we have is really the same. And here's the essential worldview error. The worldview error, the underlying lie of Satan, is that man is basically good. That's the lie. Man is basically good. That's the heart of hypocrisy. If you think that, if you think that man is basically good, then it makes perfect sense to, take, to spend all your time keeping the bad stuff out because you're basically good. And then you'll may, remain, of course, in your basically good state. And that is how religious externalism happens. And that's what happened to the Pharisees. They thought man was basically good. 
And guess what? That's exactly the same lie we see in all of the religions in the world today. Um, Satan just uses the same lies. It's just the same lies over and over again because they still work, so he doesn't have to invent new ones. The old ones work just fine. Of course, the, the correct biblical view is just the opposite. Man is basically what? Evil, depraved. It's what's inside of you that makes you bad. And you really need to deal with the inside because then the outside would be clean as well. See, only when we understand that, where when we understand that we need to be fixed on the inside, can we come to Jesus in repentance and faith and, and mercy, pleading for him to clean us on the inside. That's precisely what we can't do for ourselves. And that's what Jesus wanted the crowd to understand. And it's important for us to understand that too. You know, the, the seemingly ordinary people we talked about in the beginning of, of, uh, of our time today, uh, the reason they're capable of such depraved things is because in our core, in our inward being, in our heart of hearts, we're rotten to the core. And this rottenness, this depravity, doesn't just seep out from us. It gushes out in huge waves. I mean, everyone who has ever been born except for one has had a vile fountain of filth and evil built into his very DNA. And it's amazing that a holy God doesn't just incinerate us all as we stand. And the thing is, you know this is true. You know this is true. You've seen that in your own heart. You've seen the callous selfishness. You've seen the murderous hatred. You've seen the adulterous looks. You've noticed the deceitful scheming. You know better than anyone else that this is true of your heart. Well, back to the text. Now, what happens next is interesting. Jesus retires somewhere in private with his disciples. Uh, the crowd's gone. The Pharisees are gone. And his disciples are a bit concerned with this lesson. Uh, they, they don't really get it yet. So look in verse 17. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Stop right there. Now, the disciples, for some reason, didn't get this saying either. They didn't understand him either. And, and what they were hung up about was this whole business of the ceremonial law that they had grown up with. I mean, this was what they were taught from childhood. And, and they grew up in this system. But Jesus is, is frustrated with them because... And, and it's not the first time he's frustrated with them. He's frustrated with them in, you know, because of what the Bible elsewhere repeatedly calls the what? Hardness of their heart. Their heart was hard. That means stubborn unbelief. That means clinging to a pattern of tradition and thoughts and belief and a world system that had been ingrained in them instead of what it should have been obvious to them all along after being with Jesus all this time. They really had no excuse. It's not the first time they've heard stuff like this. And, and, and uh, Jesus expected them to have soft hearts and to understand, but so often they didn't. And, you know, neither do we sometimes when we're confronted with the truths of Scripture. Um, sometimes we stubbornly resist them. But, um, brethren, we, I encourage you to have soft hearts to the Scripture. No, says Jesus, are you so lacking in understanding? And, and verse 18, this is the message. Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him? Because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated. This brings us to the second fact about defilement, which is food 
can never defile anybody. Food can never defile anybody. And here's the issue. Jesus says, stop thinking about the externals. Stop thinking about your religious tradition. Stop thinking about food. You see, food doesn't touch your heart. Food just goes into your stomach and then exits your body. It never touches your heart. That's the critical point that Jesus is making. And as we said before, the heart is the essential issue before God. Jesus had just finished saying that that was the main issue that, with the Pharisees, that their hearts were what? Far from God, right? That's what God is concerned with. What you eat has nothing to do with it. But you might say, what about that ceremonial law? What about those laws of cleanness and uncleanness? And, and to that, look at verse 19, the parenthetical statement of Mark. He says, thus, he declared all foods clean. I, I want you to realize this is actually Mark's commentary, a parenthetical statement. And something a little bit interesting that I kind of want to kind of share with you historically is the fact that when Jesus said this in this verse here, uh, verse 18, that he declared all food clean, um, that might not have been immediately obvious to the disciples in that context because it wasn't until many years later after Jesus had already ascended, right, in Acts 10.9 that Peter was given a direct vision of God that was the distinction between clean and unclean animals were done away with. So in that vision, actually, just, you know, keep your finger in Mark and then just flip over to um, Acts 10, verse 13, if you can. Uh, God shows Peter all kinds of unclean animals. So in, in verse 13 of Acts 10, uh, let me read it to you. It says, a voice came to him. This is Peter's vision. Get up, Peter, kill and eat. And this is, you know, with all the unclean animals that Peter is seeing. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have, listen to this, never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Again, a voice came to him a second time, what God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. This happened three times. So, you see, it wasn't until this point that Peter really got the message. But here's the interesting part. You know who wrote the, uh, the book of Mark? It was a guy named Mark, right? Not, not a rocket scientist to figure that out. Uh, Mark wrote the book of Mark, but Mark was a disciple of guess who? Peter, that's right. And Mark is really Peter's account of the life of Jesus. It's Peter's eyewitness account. And so at this time, this could be really Peter's after-the-fact realization that and after he had this dream and that Jesus actually had declared all foods clean back even here in Mark 7. So isn't that interesting? I just thought that was interesting and I wanted to share that with you. But anyway, so that's a parenthetical statement. And so we say, wow, can Jesus do that? Can, can Jesus just kind of override the Old Testament law like that and abolish these commands relating to cleanness and uncleanness just willy-nilly? Well, the answer to that is, if he is God, then he can because Jesus is allowed to change the rules. He's God. But really, there's something else going on here that I want you to see. Because, we see, we've already said before that these laws of cleanness and uncleanness were only a picture of a reality to come. It was a picture for the Israelites for the many centuries before Christ came. And the picture was that Christ would be the only way that you could be made permanently clean. You needed to be made permanently clean. 
There was only one way that could happen. And now in Christ, the reality has come, right? Right? The picture was that they were unclean. They needed something to make them unclean. And when Christ came, the reality was here. So there's no need for the picture anymore. Now you can be permanently clean in Christ. There's no more need for these washings, right? That's the message of Hebrews that the pastor went through a few uh, years ago now. Um, so that's why as Christians, we don't have to worry. Those of us who are uh, Christians on this side of the cross, we don't have to worry about these dietary restrictions or any other of these, what we would call, ceremonial laws. The substance is here. That's Christ. And so there's no more need for the shadow. So if someone from a religious group tries to tell you to, you need to obey dietary laws, and surprisingly, there are actually a few of those around, and, um, including the Seventh-day Adventists is one such religious group. Uh, don't be fooled. You're freed from those restrictions in Christ. All right? Okay, let's move on. Verse 20. Here's the big explanation. Here's the, the punchline of this whole sermon and of really this whole passage. So if you've drifted off for a bit, snap back, all right? Give me your attention back. I'm calling the crowd back like, like Jesus did. Verse 20. And he was saying, that which proceeds out of the man, that is what defiles the man. For from within, out of the heart of man, proceed the evil thoughts. Now, stop right there. Jesus really can't be any clearer here. The real defilement, as we already said, comes from our heart. The heart in Hebrew thought isn't like that red thing that's beating in your chest, that's pumping blood through your body. That's not what the, the, the expression is. The heart is really the center of your, not just your emotions, but the seed of your will. It's, it's the part of you that makes decisions. It's, the, it's really, really your soul in a sense. It's, it's the seed of your will. And what Jesus is saying is that the real cesspool is your heart, the center of your very will, your desires and your wills themselves, things that pump out what we say and do. These are the things that are defiled. And if these are defiled, everything about you is what? Is defiled. Out of your heart, verse 21 says, look at verse 21, proceed evil thoughts. See, that's what he's saying is, is spewed out of this vile fountain within you. It gushes out like if you ever see a fire hydrant in the middle of summer that's uncorked and this water just, just pouring out and you wonder who's going to pay that water bill. That is what it's like. It's just gushing out of you. Evil thoughts are what gushes out of your heart. That's what God is saying. That is specifically what is gushing out of your heart. And this word evil thoughts could also be translated wicked intentions. It's your evil thoughts or your wicked intentions. They conceive in your heart and they burst forth. It's a never-ending fountain of filth that defiles you. This is how God sees you, friends. He ignores your outwardly religious acts and looks straight at your wicked heart. You might say, I don't know, Greg, I, I don't feel particularly evil. But, you know, Jesus knew you were going to say that. So he gives you examples, okay? He gives you examples. And you're, we're in for a ride because the list he gives us next is really the accounting of what's in your heart. Now, before you read this, I, I, don't want, I, don't want to miss, I don't want to miss this. This, lead, this list is going to have horrifying things inside. And you're going to say things like murders, right? And then you might say, well, I never did that. I never killed anybody, so that must not apply to me. But I want you to be very careful. 
because I want you to notice that Jesus calls this list of evil what? Evil what? Evil thoughts. He's not talking about deeds here. He's talking about evil thoughts. He's talking about evil intentions. It's the intentions that pour out of your heart that Jesus is talking about. And those alone are enough to defile you. You don't need to actually have done any of those things in a real sense to be guilty. You just had to think them. Jesus is saying, these are the things that come out of your heart. Whether they actually precipitate into action is really not what's in view here. Jesus or God will judge you even for the wicked intent. Do you hear that? For the wicked intent, for the evil thought. Like if you think, man, I really want to kill that guy. That's all you have to think. You don't actually have to kill him. You just have to hope it happens, and that's a wicked intent. And God calls it the wickedness that defiles your heart. Is that clear? All right. So let's take a look at the list. This is a tr- kind of a journey down the black hole of, of uh, sinful intentions. Now, there's a distinctive pattern here in this list in verse 21. There's really two lists here. Um, this is not um, terribly obvious from the English, but in the, in the Greek, there's two lists, each containing six items for a total of 12 items, right? Uh, these are 12 evil thoughts. And the first six terms are plural, and these are sort of the acts that we imagine, right? These are sort of the things that we imagine and, and conceive of and we want to do. And it's plural because many of these come out of our hearts. They just, you know, come spewing forth. And the second list is in the singular. And those speak of more of these settled attitudes and the character of our hearts. Um, so, so those are two lists. So we're going to look at them. And we're going to be kind of brief. We're not going to preach a sermon on each one. Uh, we're going to be quick. But you know, as we go through them, I just want you to hold these up to your own heart and, and, and think about whether this is an accurate account. Okay, ready? And by the way, this brings us to the third fundamental fact about man's defilement. The third fundamental fact about man's defilement is that the expression of man's defilement is his evil intentions. The expression of man's defilement is in his evil intentions. Okay. The first list of six. The first one is fornications, verse 21. Fornications. As you might expect, this comes from the Greek word porneia, which means sexual immorality. And this is an all-encompassing term spanning sex outside of marriage, prostitution, homosexuality. Today, of course, we take this Greek word and we get the word pornography, which is a particularly modern type of fornication. And it's no surprise that this is the first in the list, right? Because the sex drive is really one of the most powerful drives that we have. And, and so it's even the more powerfully corrupted by our hearts. We're surrounded by fornications. And you can see this in all of the hearts of the people around you. In this age, it's, it's more accessible than it's ever been. Homosexuality, of course, isn't just okay in our culture. It's fashionable. S- sex outside of marriage isn't just okay. It's expected. The vilest type of pornography is never more than a few mouse clicks away. And in fact, there's so much fornication coming out of our hearts that we're numb to it. We don't even notice it anymore. Men actually give open approval to this and encourage one another in it. And God says, this is wicked. This is evil. Do you see these coming out of your heart? Here's a second item on the list, theft. 
Now remember, you don't have to actually have stolen anything. You just have to have the intention of your heart being theft. This is having eyes that want something that don't belong to you. You want it, and you want to take it. It could be money. It could be something else. So ask yourself this. Have you ever been prompted by your heart to steal? And third is murder. Again, you don't actually have to have committed murder. This is really just what pours out of your heart. Remember Matthew 5, 21 to 22. I'll just read that to you. Matthew 5, 21 to 22. Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount. You have, this is what Jesus says. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you, that's what Jesus says, that everyone who is, what? Angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. Jesus is the same message back in Matthew 5 as, as, he, as he is telling here. It's the same message. Even being angry makes you guilty of murder and defiles your heart. Here's a fourth item. We're on item number four. Adulteries. Adulteries. Remember in the same sermon in Matthew 5, 27, the same sermon of the mount, this is what Jesus says. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his what? Heart. You hear that over and over again. This is not, a, this is not an isolated message in the scriptures. This is a consistent message from Jesus. Ever looked lustfully on a person or on an image? You're already guilty of heart adultery. That's what's gushing forth from your heart. Do you see it in your own heart? Here's number five, deeds of coveting. Deeds of coveting. Now, coveting, of course, is wanting something that somebody else has that you don't. This is greedy desires. I, I see it in, in kids all the time. You know? They don't even really want this thing. They just want it because their brother has it. Um, that's the only reason they want it. But for us, it's like, wow, look at that guy's car. Look at that guy's house. Ooh. Look at their family. Hmm. And even if you don't take any action to try to take these things from them, a bitterness starts to grow in your heart, right? Because you think, in your heart of hearts, that you deserve those things more than they do. You ever think that way? You ever become bitter at somebody because they have something that you wanted? I mean, just go to the nursery if you want to see this, right? But this one is actually really interesting because this is a hard sin that God had called out all the way back in the Ten Commandments, right? The Tenth Commandment in Exodus is, you shall not what? Covet. Covet. That's the Tenth Commandment. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7, 7, right, later admits that this was the commandment that taught him what sin was and his need for a Savior because this was the commandment out of all of them that he couldn't follow. Are you the same way? And Number six in the list, this is the last of the first list of deeds that, that pour out of your heart, is wickedness. Now, this one is more of an all-encompassing catch-all word, meaning just malice. This is generally just evil, a general disposition of evil. And it's kind of like Jesus just saying, and many other evil thoughts such as these. That's kind of like what it is. 
So that's sort of the intentions that kind of pop out and, and, and uh, create themselves in your heart over and over again every day, right? And there's, here's a second list. The second list is a list of evil attitudes in your heart that are really the essential settled character of your heart. This is, you know, if you had to describe your heart, like you would say, that car is blue, right? You would say, that's what your heart is, okay? So these are heart attitudes, heart attitudes. So the second list, first element you'll look, is deceit. Deceit. This is essentially a, a lying heart. Um, the character of our hearts, Jesus is saying, is deceitful inherently. And it manifests itself through our mouth in the form of lies, right? We have a deceitful heart, and that manifests in the form of lies. People lie all the time. It's convenient to lie. Or because they want to get away with something, so they lie. Or maybe they want to manipulate somebody, so they lie, right? You all know this. Do you have a heart that gushes with deceit? And the next one is sensuality. Sensuality. This is an unrestrained, this is actually an interesting word. Um, let's see, in the, well, in the King James, I can't remember, it's, it's called lasciviousness, lasciviousness, right, which I think is a cool word. But this is um, an unrestrained, uncontrolled running after your passions. That's how you can think of it. So this is, you don't restrain your passion, you just run after it, it's uncontrolled. Um, no self-control. You're just completely dominated by your evil desires. When I think of this word, I'm reminded of the story about Sodom, right, in Genesis 19, where the angels are in uh, Lot's house hiding. Well, not really hiding. The angels don't have to hide, but they're there. And the men of, An the men of Sodom are seeking to enter this house so they can have sexual relations with these angels, right? And then the angels struck them what, remember? Blind. And then what happened? It says that now that these people were blind, they then wearied themselves trying to find the doorway. They didn't give up. The blindness didn't seem to phase them at all because they were completely driven by their sensuality, utterly controlled by their lust. That's what this characteristic looks like. Are you controlled by your passions and your desires? The next one is envy. Literally in the Greek, literally this is evil eye. That's what it, what it says, evil eye. This is the bent of our hearts that, that lead to covetousness, uh, envy. We see the things that we want, we think we deserve it more than the next guy, and, and that's what controls us. That be what we think about. That starts to be what characterizes us. Instead of a heart of gratefulness for the things that we have and the blessings that we have that we don't deserve, we become discontent and obsessed with what we don't have, right? Does that sound familiar? And, and we're willing to sin to get it, of course. And, of course, once we get it, it's the next thing, right? Because it doesn't end. That's what this type of heart characteristic does for us. It's really what materialism is made of. This is materialism. The next is slander. This one could actually be translated blasphemy. And in fact, the King James translated it as blasphemy. Um, this is speech that defames either the character of God or rips down the character of other people. So remember, Jesus isn't saying that you actually have to have done this again. Um, this is just a hard attitude of it. You could just be thinking about this. You could just be putting people down in your mind. Man, that 
guy's an idiot. He just cut me off. What is he thinking? Um, it's just ripping down people's character. It's not the actual act of slander or blasphemy. This is just a hard attitude. You're putting people down in your mind. You're, you're insulting, blaspheming God in your mind. You, you, you inwardly, well, outwardly, you're smiling, right? You might even, people are good at this. You might actually be smiling at them and be talking to them, and inwardly you're cursing them. The next one is pride. This is the next characteristic of a heart of defilement. In my estimation, this is really the characteristic that more than anything else, accurately describes the condition of the human heart. Because we all think we're better than everybody else. That's what pride means. You think you deserve more than you do. This is gross self-exaltation, leading to arrogance to God, right? And, and arrogance to your fellow man. Your overriding desire in your life is that you want to look good in front of other people. This is just like the Pharisees. You're selfish and self-centered, and none of that seems unusual to you because really, you think you are the most important person in the world, and you think everybody else ought to agree with you. This is just a, a haughty look and a haughty attitude. And the last element on this list is foolishness. Foolishness. This is not just ignorance foolishness. This is an unreasoning folly. This is irrational impulsiveness that makes sinful decisions based on carnal desires. And the sense of it is, is well put in Psalm 14.1. Psalm 14.1 says, The fool has said in his, by the way, what? Heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. That's the sense here of foolishness. And that's it. That's the laundry list. A vile collection of the worst thought sins. Any one of these would defile you, but the mass of them gushes out from your heart like a fountain of defilement. So let me ask you, did any one of these reflect what you see in your own heart? And by the way, this is also amazing, if you think about it. None of these were in Jesus' heart. Not a single one. Jesus was totally free of all of this. That's amazing. Well, let me try to wrap it up. I, I'm not going to go through all the points again. I'm just going to give you a two-sentence summary statement of the heart of this message. And that is that Jesus taught us in this passage that our defilement from God comes not from outside of us, but from inside of us. And each of us are born with a fountain in our hearts that gushes forth nothing but vileness and evil thoughts. And that fountain within is what defiles us and makes us putrid before God. So now what do we do with all this? What, what does this mean for all of us? And I just want to give you a quick... Um, word of application. So first I want to talk to people who are unbelievers that, that don't know Christ and who have never given their lives to Christ. Here's what you do with all this. You might look at this list and say, wow, this does look like my heart. And if this is the standard that it's just how your heart thinks and that's how ju God judges me, then I am defiled before God. I hope that's how you think. And no one can live up to the standard, you might say. What can anyone do to be clean before God. The whole point here is that nobody can do anything to be clean before God. Your heart spews forth evil, and there is not a thing you can do about it. You can't clean yourself. So what do you do? Here it is. You need to ask God for a new heart, for a new heart. Only God can create such a heart for you. 
the way to procure a new heart is easy. It's to repent of your sin. It's to acknowledge your own wickedness. It's to turn with faith to Christ as your righteousness. See, Christ was completely righteous. None of this was in his heart. And he says, I will give you that righteousness if you come in faith. If you do that, if you become a believer, you won't have to worry about being dirty anymore because Christ will make you clean. And in fact, in John 1.7, 1 John 1.7, it says, the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's what the blood of Jesus does for us if you're a believer. You see, as bad and as vile as the fountain is in your heart, there's a much more powerful fountain that we sang about. And that's the clean, cleansing fountain of Christ's blood. In that fountain, all your defilement will be washed away. It will be clean. Now, believers, here's my word for you. You need to, first of all, realize that you're already clean in Christ. All right? Because if you have trusted in Christ, then Christ has already washed you with his blood. You already have a new heart. And if, you, if you've come to faith in Christ, this laundry list of sin and filth that we've just looked at simply is not the reality in your heart anymore. Because you're already clean. Praise the Lord. But wait. You say, hold on, I, I did see some of those things in my heart. So what's the deal? Ah, but see, the Bible says you're reborn. That stuff no longer gushes from your heart. What gushes from your heart is this. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control, right? That should be what gushes from your heart. You've been made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And in fact, just turn with me, if you can, to 2 Corinthians 6, 9. I, I want you to see this, 2 Corinthians 6, 9. And this is important, I, I think, for you to see. Second Corinthians 6, 9. 6, 9 says, or do you not know, this is another list, by the way. Here's, a, here's another list. Or do you not know that the righteous, the unrighteous, sorry, sorry, let me start again. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, no, sorry, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Does that list sound familiar? It's a lot of overlap, isn't there? All right, listen up. Here's the kicker. Look at verse 11. Such, what? Were some of you, but you were what? Washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. Praise the Lord. Wow, you are clean. You cannot be defiled anymore once Jesus has washed you. You stay clean. All right. You're insistent. You say, why do I still struggle with these things? Why do I, if, if I'm clean, why are these things still in my heart? And, and that's a legitimate question. Because that really is the reality for all of us. And um, that's a whole sermon in and of itself. But let me just want to show you 
what Paul, the, well, the Apostle Paul, even in 1 Corinthians 4, 3 or 5, you don't have to turn there, but he just says he doesn't even trust his own heart. This is the Apostle Paul, and he doesn't trust his own heart. And, and, and what's, what's going on here? This is the best analogy that I could think of, right? Um, because it's summertime and it's hot. And in my house, we have these big trash containers because you know, when we first moved in, you know, we were young and we didn't know any better. And we thought these big trash containers were a good idea because we hated taking out the trash. And we thought you had to take out the trash less often if you have a big trash container. And you all know why this is a bad idea. Because if you take out the trash once every two or three days, the trash, what? It stings. It reeks. So a couple of days ago, there was a particularly bad-smelling uh, piece of, of trash in my trash can. And it was really bad. And, you know, actually, for some reason, I didn't notice it. But uh, my wife walks in, and, uh, and she goes, oh, what died in here, you know? Um, so, you know, we took it out. And, and, um, and after we took it out, what happened? Do you think the smell dissipated? No. No, it didn't. It lingered for a long time, right? That smell lingered. The trash was gone, but the smell remained. And I think that's how it is for us. The fountain of sin and filth and defilement has been turned off, but the stench of sin still remains. And it will remain with us as long as we reside in the sinful bodies. But it's really not who we are anymore. And our job in this life is to just continually put that sin to death, put the sin to death. Um, remember who you are now, right? Remember who you are. You are clean people. Remember that and then act like clean people. So here's my exhortation. You know, you should know you still smell with sin. You're still infested by it. Um, be on guard against it. And listen, I think as Christians, we tend to walk around oblivious to the fact that our hearts, you know, were formerly a source of all our sin, and, and still now, um, in, our, in our bodies, we still have all the sin, and, and we're not watchful of it, right? And that's our biggest mistake, and, and why some of us don't seem to ever make progress against sin is because we're not on guard against the sins in our own heart. We follow our desires without thought and without intervention by the part of us that knows that these things are unclean. So don't just foolishly react to and follow your lusts and passions. You've got to learn to recognize them and then fight them. And be watchful for the enemy that's right under your nose. If the Apostle Paul couldn't trust his own heart, then why would we? So learn to recognize the passions in your heart that manifest the sinful thoughts. And, uh, you know, fight that sin with the means that God has given us. That's the scripture. That's prayer. That's what we like to say, the resurrection power of, of uh, Christ, right? The, the, Christ, the power that has resurrected Christ from the grave. That power is at your disposal in your battle to live the Christian life in a powerful way. But above all, rejoice that you were made the recipient of so great a salvation and by the cleansing that you received by the blood of Christ. That's joy indeed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, uh, we close in prayer. We are just uh, so humbled and, and so grateful for the word you've given us. And Lord, just to see what we were formerly and what we've come from and what we are now, what you've done for us in Christ is an amazing, 
and wondrous reality. And Lord, we pray that uh, you would help us all as if, if we're unbelievers, Lord, to understand the blessings and the power that, um, that Christ has in the fountain of grace, the fountain of love, and the fountain of mercy and forgiveness that we can tap into and, and be clean. And if we're unbelievers, and we're, sorry, if we're believers, Lord, help us to realize, Lord, how vile these things that we've talked about are before you. And help us to not look at the external all the time, but to look into our hearts and see what's in there. Clean it out so that our, the houses in our hearts will be acceptable to you um, as your dwelling place. And, and Lord, we want you to, to live there and we want you to um, use us and be useful to you. So Lord, uh, help us to have a right understanding. We pray that this passage would seat, sit deep in our hearts as we exit today. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, let's stand one more time.